the nature of this material world is that it's a very, as we started by saying, it's kind of a dirty place. The material world is a place for souls who've been disconnected from their source. It is a scary, unfriendly place. Srila Prabhupada's guru said, it's no place for gentlemen. We're disconnected from our own self. The real, that super, the super soul. And what are we trying to do? We, we enact this, you know, it's the desires that we have. It's very, it's very interesting. It's very subtle. Uh, that the behaviors that's going on in this world is actually a type of imitation where the individual soul tries to imitate God. So we've gotten this kind of heart disease, if you will. This is the real heart disease. That we have this ignorance of the Supreme. And then we try to put ourselves in the center as the focus, as the most important, the best, most attractive, most funny, most good-looking, whatever. That's what our ego is doing. The ego is the subtle material element which is directly inverse from the God consciousness awareness. It's like light and dark. So now, ego, now we're guided by ego. We're disconnected from the source, so we're, we've gotten this false ego, ahankara, which is pushing us to try to put ourself in the spotlight. That's the root of what's really going on. And that's where these negative emotions come from. All of these negative qualities, like pride, envy, hatred, cruelty. It's all coming from ego. The false ego. So, someone who's on this transcendental platform, they can be in this world but completely aloof from those negative qualities. The analogy is also given of a lotus leaf. If you've seen lotus flowers, it's one of the most beautiful flowers in nature. They come up from the murky, you know, depth of a pond. And they have these huge leaves that have like a waxy covering that if water gets on them, they immediately just dribble off. The leaf can't actually get wet. So a self-realized person, they can be in this world, but they're like that. Nothing can touch them. None of the contamination of this world. So they've connected. They've, they've performed actual yoga. Actual yoga is connection. It's connection with God. And it says here, first they realize that the self is different from the material body. This is square one. Because until we actually conceive of that deeply, until we kind of integrate that reality, then we're still, our vision is still very external. So to know that the body is different from the self, it's a preliminary step. Otherwise, there's the example given of two men. They went out, and there's a pond, a great, you know, lake or river that they live by. And one of them has a boat, and he periodically, constantly goes out at night, goes for a boat ride. So 
he went there, he got in the boat with his friends, and he started rowing. And uh, it was pretty dark, they couldn't exactly see where they were, but, you know, he's done this a lot, so he's rowing, making a lot of splashing, a lot of effort, you know, so after a while, these guys tired, they say, geez, I wonder where we are, we've been out here so long, you know, we must be so far away, maybe we should turn back. So he gets a little closer to the edge of the boat, and then he looks, and he says, hey, wait a second, and he looks closer, he can see... <laughs> He can see the, his house in the background. And then he pulls, he sees, we didn't pull up the anchor. So he's doing all that work, rowing and rowing, but that anchor was there, they got nowhere. So if we still have this bodily concept of life, really all the effort, spiritual practice, even we're putting in, we're not getting past square one. So this is a conception to conceive. We have to analyze the material body and see that it's just blood, I was reading with Holden the other day. It's blood, urine, fat, mucus. That's what our body is actually composed of. It's material elements. We're not that. We are not that mucus, that water, all the material elements that comprise our body. So now when you look around, all you're seeing are other bodies, which means other bags of material elements. You're not seeing the person, the soul. So our whole civilization on the material platform, it's material elements and different fluctuations and different combinations. So we are not that. We're using these bodies. But if we identify with that body, then our whole vision of life just becomes about the body is what's important. Therefore, making the body beautiful, giving the body a nice place to stay. It, it's, it keeps us bound like that anchor. We can't actually step out of the box to conceive of life in a higher way, in the spiritual way. So this is the first step. Then when one further advances, they come to knowledge of impersonal Brahman. So impersonal Brahman is defined as the effulgence of the Supreme Absolute Truth. Effulgence implies a great blinding light. Now this we find in many, many spiritual, religious cultures and traditions. This energy, this primordial energy and light and spirit. The Native Americans, they revere, they worship the great spirit. Buddhists in meditation, they endeavor to realize this substance of impersonal nirvana, some state beyond the fluctuations of the mind, beyond desire. Yogis in the Vedic tradition, they attempt to merge their consciousness with this Brahman, this spiritual oneness of energy. And even, even in our Western cultures, the concept sometimes when people are dying, I see the light, I see the light. So there's some light, there's some spiritual energy. This is Brahman. And as one progresses further, they understand Paramatma, as we said, God within the heart, the super soul. 
And ultimately, when one is fully purified, he realizes his constitutional position is to be the eternal servant of God, that we have the connection of love, actually, with that supreme being. That is a very dynamic stage of enlightenment. Whereas Brahman is somewhat... It doesn't facilitate such an active spiritual existence. Or also just knowing you're not the body, you know, philosophically. That also can't fully awaken what the quality of ananda. Ananda means bliss. So that ananda is accessed in this Bhagavan, or this personal conception of the Absolute Truth. Brahman Paramatma Bhagavan. Sat Chit Ananda. Sat refers to Brahman. Chit has that... Sat means eternality. So the stage of eternality is realized as Brahman. Then you keep progressing and the chit means consciousness or intelligence. So when that your realization of the absolute truth fructifies more, it matures more, then the sat includes the chit feature. That's called paramatma realization. And ananda, when the bliss is added to that, one realizes Bhagavan, or that is the stage of Bhagavan realization, which includes the bliss aspect. And what is that bliss? That bliss is loving, personal, interaction. That's really what's moving the world. People want to have inter-relationships. They want to feel love. They want to give love. That's of the soul. So... When one matures to that point, it says, out of all those persons, that individual is on the highest platform. They're the best. Okay. So, any comment, question on this text? Well, part of what you're saying echoes what I mentioned previously, that actually the false ego wants to become God. But what we're hearing about here is a stage where actually we realize it's called Echintya Beta Beta Tattva. It means simultaneous oneness and difference. So we are simultaneously one with yet different from God at the same time. So in quality we are one. But in quantity, it's different. So therefore I mentioned how we feel ourselves a part of something greater. So we are not the Supreme God, but we are connected with God. So one who he's considered best because he's considered most mature in his God realization. Of which we are a part, but we are not the whole. You can say it that way. We're a part of the Supreme Whole. 
So these are levels of realization of the Supreme Whole, Brahman, Paramatma, and Bhagavan. Then you can have the exchange of love. But the goal of all genuine spiritual traditions is actually to awaken love of God. So that, that means that there's this two. There's this individual soul and the supreme soul. And that dichotomy is not actually, it's never actually broken or transcended. There, in eternal spiritual perfection, there's also a sense of individuality. We're individual souls, and God, the supreme soul, is also an individual. Supreme individual. And there's a connection, there's a relationship. So, technically, the Srimad Bhagavatam, another Vedic text, explains the process of both creation, which is called Visarga, and also the annihilation. It explains how, see, in the Bible it says that the earth was created on the seventh day, let there be light, but the Vedas are going to actually give you the details, what we say the technology. So how, from what's called pradhan, or the unmanifested state of material energy, what happens is that there's a agitation, there's a subtle influence, and then this pradhan, the primordial material substance, begins to differentiate. And that is caused by the Supreme and the first element which manifests from that is called ahankara or false ego. It's a subtle element which later on evolves into the different gunas or the modes of material energy which are called goodness, passion and ignorance. And these modes then manifest from the mode of goodness comes the mind. From the mode of passion comes the intelligence. And from the ignorance comes the gross senses, the material body, and this, the sense objects, the elements, the gross elements like earth, water, fire, ether. There's a systematic process of how it all develops, but it all is coming from false ego, actually. So that's called the illusory consciousness. Now that's what we're all wrapped up in. So, by purification, especially mantra meditation, what we practice, these sounds are so powerful that they break through that illusion, that false ego. And actually that false ego disintegrates. It loses its um, ability to cover us. It loses its potency to influence us. And so what happens is that the false ego disintegrates and then the original divine consciousness of the soul is awakened. And the divine consciousness has what's called pure ego, or knowledge of our individual spiritual nature, which is not contaminated. Right now the consciousness is contaminated. Yeah, goodness, passion, ignorance. You can look in the 14th chapter of Bhagavad Gita. A really nice description about these three modes of material nature.
I got all day for questions. Um, I think we probably want to cover one more text. All right, let's do that then. But um, let me check the time. I think probably we can save that for next time. Why don't we see if any more questions or discussion? This is a important part of these calls. We like to have some dialogue, some interaction. Go ahead. Um. So, alright, I. But the uh, the three modes. Do does the ego like stay the same in between lives? Like, have I acted this way like in my false self in past lives? So. Yeah, it's a great question. Now, the soul, ultimately, the Srimad Bhagavatam reveals that the soul is actually pure. The soul is not contaminated by illusion, by suffering, by death. That is all happening in the false consciousness of the ahankar, the false ego. So what happens is that this covering of the soul is composed of the mind, intelligence, and ego. And those coverings actually carry with us life after life. It's so deeply rooted that we identify with it so much that even at death, our soul is carried to the next body through this subtle body or the astral body, which is the mind, intelligence, and ego. So that same type of consciousness that we have now, yes, we've been carrying for a long, long time. <laughs> it's cool. It's also a little problematic in the sense that we're very attached to the way that we do things. And sometimes the way that we like to do things is the reason why we're bound. We don't want to change. We don't want anyone to tell us what to do. So that's the ego. That's this desire we have to be independent. I thought about uh, after I asked that question, I mean, after I said that, I was thinking there's a go is talking about the, you know, I was taking pride in, ooh, I've been here this long. I mean, I knew that's what I was doing, but I, I still did it. <laughs> yeah, so, so this independent-mindedness actually is what keeps us here. So the Vedas encourage us that actually if we want to shed this covering, eventually we need to approach a spiritual master or a guru someone who can really kind of dissect our false ego <laughs> because it's something we can't do ourselves. It's so subtle that we're so invested in it and we identify with it so much, we don't want to give it up. We think that's me. It becomes very painful. Just think, if someone, if someone criticizes you or offends you, speaks really bad stuff about you, how much it hurts us. But is that really us? It's hurting our false ego. So therefore, you know, imagine if someone takes a little, you have a big balloon and someone just kind of little, tries to pinch it or pop it. How much pain we feel. But that's what we need. And ultimately, that's what heals us, is coming into a higher concept of reality. That I'm not so I'm not such a big important person. It's a very humbling experience. It's very purifying. Actually, it feels really good to be humbled.
and therefore you see sometimes people who become very big or very famous or you know they also often get the ego trip they start thinking they're better than others they're more important everyone else is lower and if they're fortunate sometimes that bubble gets burst and usually they have to go through some really embarrassing thing really some unwanted thing some catastrophe and their whole little world just simmers back into a, a more realistic picture of of life reality yeah it's in our head we got head issues we got head disease and the guru is someone they're also pure they're on such a transcendent platform they can see right through they can see all the crud in our consciousness they know right what to say what to do how to pop our burst our bubble and the thing is that yeah and the thing is that we can't do it on our own the analogy I always give is that if you have a someone puts a dot of marker on your nose or on your forehead you can't see it but everyone else can see it and they're like oh my god this guy or your sticker someone's got some really goofy sticker on their forehead everyone else can laugh but that person's like what are you what are you guys laughing at like what's the deal so our egos like that. We can't tell when we're proud, but others can tell right away. You can always pick up on, but that's because we're under the influence of it. So that subtle body has been carrying us, it's still with us, and what our task is to really deconstruct it by developing a very serious spiritual practice. Like what we're doing now, hearing these sacred texts, digesting it, meditating on it, that's all part of it. That's all part of this gradual effacing of the false ego. And then we want to couple that with practice with others in a community. It becomes more powerful. If we were just reading our on our own, you know, this kind of discussion we're having is generally more powerful because it's more engaging, it's more enlivening. We're processing on a deeper level. It's going in a little deeper usually. So... We do our, our sadhana, it means our spiritual practice. And then we, generally we do a meditation practice to help, you know, go even deeper. And the best form of that recommended in this age is called mantra meditation. Where we chant the Hare Krishna Maha Mantra. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. You repeat this transcendental sound, that cleanses away the, the from the root that covering the material contamination of our consciousness because it's a spiritual sound it has this cleaning power so we want to do that more and more Hare Krishna Hare Krishna 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 Hare 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 Rama Hare Rama 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 Hare Hare we could even on this call potentially we could do like a meditation session around it might be nice but even in our own practice we should have some means that we meditate and we also free our mind at least for some time from the you know kind of intense programming that we're accustomed that our mind is accustomed to and then we should do some service that's called seva that also helps efface the false ego because the ego is all about me enjoying through nice food nice clothes whatever whatever satisfies my senses so to counter that, we have to go out of our way. We have to actively do some service. 
like Holden saw us on the campus when we're distributing Bhagavad Gita, distributing other books. That's a service that we're doing that's purifying our hearts. Yeah, Maybe something I don't, I wouldn't just want to do all of a sudden, but I'm doing it, it's purifying me. And then it becomes really enjoyable because I start getting a taste, a higher taste than if I'm just sitting on the couch all day. So seva is an important component also. We should willingly take up some service. And what kind of service? Well, there's different ways we can serve, but primarily the more we can serve in a way directly related to spreading spiritual knowledge of Krishna consciousness, that's the best service. It's a very direct service. You know, you can go and mow your neighbor's lawn. Sure, that's good. You can do volunteer work. But when you serve, you know, a spiritual organization that by its very fundamental nature is meant to help broadcast this essential knowledge to the world, that service becomes transcendental. It goes beyond just goodness. It actually becomes extremely potent for clearing the heart of all this dirt. So therefore we want to do that service, study, and meditation. Those are some three areas that we can all... uh, think about, contemplate on, try to improve on perhaps